Why do we study God's word? Now, this is, I'm not out for trick questions. So don't look at your neighbor and tell her why you're studying God's word. Don't even answer it, okay? Don't answer this one. But I, I, I want to start with some knots why we don't study God's word. We do not study God's word to amass biblical information as if there is going to be some heavenly trivia question someday. The answer is Jesus, okay? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe, right? So that's not why we're here. We are also not here to obey. Now, don't slam your books and start running out heresy, whatever. Follow me here. If I am reading God's word for the sole purpose of obeying God's word, that there's a real caution there that I could be breeding legalism in my daily living. There's a, there is another reason, the only reason, why I study God's word. I study God's word to meet the pilot, to know the author. So that's why I want to open his word, because I want to know him. Because to know him is to love him. To love him is to obey him. And to obey him is to live as Jesus did. Now, I didn't make up this progression. I got it straight from God's word. Listen to 1 John 2, 3 and 6. By the way, I will always give you more scripture on your handout than what we'll read here aloud. And a note-taking tip, if you just put a little check mark by one that we read together and you wanted to go back and read the other ones, you'd have a head start. It wouldn't hurt any of us to read one more than once, but you understand what I'm saying. All right? So 1 John, and I'll also always have them up here. Um, any scripture that I use so you won't be trying to manipulate notes in a Bible and everything else on a lap, which is where you're going to be lap learners here starting next week, okay? All right, 1 John 2, 3 through 6, and we can be sure that we know him if we obey his commandments. If someone claims, I know God, but doesn't obey God's commandments, that person's a liar and is not living in the truth. Wow, that's a little harsh, but God said that. But those who obey God's word truly show how completely they love him. That is how we know we're living in him. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. And then in John 14, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, obey my commandments. So looking at these two scriptures, again, notice the progression. To know him is to love him. And to love him is to obey him. And to obey him is to live as Jesus did. So this is why I study God's word, to know God. There are different approaches to Bible study. The airplane ride versus the I met the pilot. And I want to be in the I met the pilot camp. As we study Elijah, my prayer for all of us, me and for you, is that we will all know God in new and deeper ways. How do we study God's word? The first way is intentionally. Ready, again, not just for the airplane ride, not just to check off I did my 20 minutes today in this first week. Lord, help us all. It's five days. you got to get them in, right? It's not that. It's to meet the pilot. Not just to complete the assignment, but truly to meet God. We study in totality. When we very first meet Elijah, he shows up in 1 Kings 17, verse 1. 
This is the first time he's mentioned in Scripture. Now, Elijah, who was from Tishbe and Gilead, told King Ahab, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God whom I worship and serve, there'll be no dew or rain during the next few years unless I give the word. But we must study it in totality, which really means in context. So we're going to look, start at the beginning. Actually, before the beginning. This is before the beginning, and we're going to get all the way up to Elijah. This will be the fastest biblical history you've had in two minutes or less. Are you ready? So before anything, before there was time, there was God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And they decided to create, and they created everything and everyone that there is. And in that creation, it included creating man and woman, and they gave them free choice, which is what allows us to choose to love God, right? But it is also what allows us to choose to sin, to, follow, to not follow God, to do our own thing, to not be obedient to God. Well, sin just got worse and worse, more and more rampant, and God chose a man named Noah to preserve humankind and the animal kingdom as well. And, and you've heard, probably heard about this with the ark and the flood. Well, after Noah, God promises to never destroy the world again by flood and gives us the sign of the rainbow. That's God's promise to us that he will never do that again. Then God chooses a man named Abraham to be the spiritual and physical father of Israel, his chosen people. God promises Abraham and Isaac a son. This is perhaps the most famous story of the two together, Abraham and Isaac. God always delivers on his promise. His, always, his word is always good, always true. So he does give a son. This is a memorable moment where we find that God stays the hand of Abraham and God provides another sacrifice. Well, Isaac goes on and has, Isaac lives. Isaac goes on and has two kids, Jacob and Esau. Jacob, God changes his name to Israel. And his sons become the source of the clans or the tribes of Israel. Joseph is a favored son, but a hated brother. The coat of many colors, maybe you've heard this story. This is this guy. And God chooses him to save his people from starvation and he does this through Joseph is actually sold into slavery into Egypt uh, and, and goes to Egypt and that's where he saves the nation of Israel and the world really from starvation the world in that part well God then chooses Moses to get his people out of Egypt and Moses you know stories that you maybe put in place with him. This is the parting of the Red Sea. But there's also, this is the time period that we get the Ten Commandments. This is the time period that um, the, temple, the tabernacle is built, the tent of worship, the tent. This all starts here with Moses. Now, Moses is not allowed to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. His successor is Joshua. And God chooses Joshua to lead the people into the land where the Canaanites are. And God stresses to the people the importance of getting rid of the worship of false gods, getting rid of the worship of, of Baal. And God uses Joshua to do this partly. But 
the people, his children, don't totally obey, and all of the gods are not gotten rid of. And this leads to a time period where there is a downward spiral of sin that just gets worse and worse and worse. The time period is called the period of the judges. Because what happens is the, the sin gets worse and worse and worse. The people repent. God answers their cry of repentance with the deliverer in the form of a judge. Don't think like Judge Judy, like in some courtroom. Think more like a military commander. This is just a picture of one of the judges, Samson. The last judge um, is Samuel, and God chooses Jan Samuel, who's not only a judge, he's a he's a in-between guy because he is a judge, but he's also a prophet, and he's the one that God chooses to anoint the first king of Israel, and this is Saul. This is Saul being anointed as the first king. Well, God chooses David to be the second king of Israel, shepherd boy David from the... Uh, you might know him as the guy who killed Goliath, that story. Wrote many of the Psalms. Um, and he becomes King David. Now David has several children. His son Solomon was his successor. And now we are to first kings. Okay, That's the, the whole Bible up until when we meet Elijah. All right, first and second kings. Let's look at this. He is also found in both of the books, 1st and 2nd Kings. He's also found in the Old Testament in Malachi. He's also referenced in, in the New Testament in three books there, Matthew, John, and James. There are 385 years represented in the time span of 1st and 2nd Kings of Israel's history. The author is actually unknown. Uh, many scholars believe it was Jeremiah. Others believe it was perhaps a group of prophets that wrote the book. So we don't know for sure. Just an overall picture of beginning to end to let us know what's happening during this time of Elijah that we're going to be studying. First Kings opens at the height of Israel's power. David is old and dying and passing the kingdom on to his son Solomon. When Second Kings closes... It's the, a very down time for the nation of Israel. As a matter of fact, the book closes with them being led off into captivity. The building of God's temple is in the uh, early chapters of 1 Kings. And at the end of 2 Kings, the temple is destroyed, as well as the houses burned and the walls torn down to the city of Jerusalem. 1 Kings picks up where 2 Samuel leaves off. And the kingdom is united. This kingdom of Israel is a united kingdom. Now, if we look at the summary through the chapters of these two books, which, by the way, these two books were one book. They were divided into first and second kings purely for convenience sake. So if you look at them all together, that's probably a truer picture. The kingdom united uh, is the first kings 1 through 11, chapters 1 through 11. So what's happened here is Solomon, David's son, has taken over as king. Solomon asked for wisdom. God is so impressed with this that he not only gives him wisdom, he gives him everything else like bonus. So Solomon is a songwriter, a naturalist, a judge, a poet, an architect. He built the temple and the palace. Unfortunately, Solomon didn't continue so well because he disobeyed God. And he took foreign wives, really 
for political reasons because he did not trust God to protect the people. He made political alliances. And part of this involved marrying other women outside that worshipped other gods. And it wasn't long before Solomon built them their own temples. And it wasn't long after that that Solomon started going to church with his different wives. And this was not good. His heart turned away from following the Lord completely. Solomon's later years were really marked by compromise and disobedience and turmoil. He pursued every avenue under the sun to find satisfaction and happiness. You can read that in the book of Ecclesiastes. In his old age, Solomon does turn back to God, but he soon dies thereafter. The next chapters, 1 Kings 12 through 22, the kingdom divided. Well, with this um, prolific building program that Solomon started and then had to maintain, taxes were really high on the people. And what caused the kingdom to divide, if I could say it in one word, is taxes. Because what happened was his son, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, became the king. And the people said, hey, can you give us some tax relief? The taxes are really too high. And Rehoboam decides, no, no tax relief. As a matter of fact, taxes are going to increase. Well, there becomes a revolt between the north and the south. And ten of the tribes in the north say, you know what? We're not going to acknowledge you as our king anymore. So in one word... What divided the two kingdoms? Taxes. All right. Now, th now, maybe that was new to you to learn. There you go. That's what divided the kingdoms. So now you have two kingdoms, the north and the south. Now, this gets really confusing because I already told you whose name was changed to Israel? Jacob. So Israel was the name of a man. But then Abraham is the father of Israel. That's a group of people. Israel was also a location. And now Israel is half of the location. So you see, this gets a little confusing sometimes when we're reading Scripture, right? So just be aware of the different names. The two tribes were Israel and Judah. We'll come back to that. The last part of the first and second Kings summary is really the whole book of Second Kings, and that is when the kingdom was destroyed. Elijah leaves the scene literally in chapter 2 of 2 Kings and his successor Elisha takes over. A quick comparison of the north and the south just to help you keep the kingdom straight in your mind, especially if you're wanting to read through First and Second Kings, this might be helpful to you. So in the northern kingdom, there were 10 of the 12 tribes. Remember who we talked about the 12 tribes and who did they come from? See why all that backstory matters? So these are the 12 tribes, and 10 of them are now in the northern kingdom. It's referred to by three different names. Israel, you saw that on the map. Ephraim, that's because Ephraim was the name of the clan that kind of led the revolt against bowing to Rehoboam, acknowledging him as their king. And Samaria, that became the capital of the north. So sometimes the whole area is referred to as Samaria. There are 209 years in the northern kingdom. Twenty kings ruled. All were evil in the sight of the Lord. And the first king of the north was Jeroboam, not to be confused with Rehoboam. I know, that's horrible, isn't it? What ended the northern kingdom? 
the Assyrians. The Assyrians came in, conquered Israel, just meaning the northern kingdom now, not the whole thing, right? So now I'm using Israel as just talking about the northern kingdom. They conquered Israel and they actually scattered the people all throughout the uh, Assyrian Empire. The southern kingdom, only two of the 12 tribes are, are represented in the southern kingdom, Benjamin and Judah. But it's called Judah because Judah was the larger of the two tribes. But Benjamin was also a part of the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom lasted longer than the northern kingdom at 345 years. There were also 20 kings, but all of them were not evil. There were eight good kings. The first king, again, Rehoboam, that's Solomon's son. Remember, tax guy. And what ended the southern kingdom was the Babylonians. The Babylonians conquered Judah. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. The houses were burned, and the wall was reduced to rubble. So a hint to better understand First and Second Kings, if you're wanting to read through that in our time together, and I do encourage you to do that. What happens is the author, or authors, we don't know if it's Jeremiah or a bunch of prophets, but the writer of First and Second Kings flips back and forth between the two kingdoms and between time periods. So in other words, he might talk about um, the northern kingdom for a while and their kings, and then all of a sudden he goes back in time and talks about the southern kingdom, okay? So just keep that in mind as you're reading through. Key people you're going to come across in 1 Kings, Jeroboam, we already know who he is, right? The first king of Israel and the northern kingdom. Now imagine what happens during this time. Up in the north, where was the temple? In the south, in Jerusalem. Well, he's like, wait a minute. I don't want my people going down to the south to worship at that temple. So what does he do? He creates two temples in the north. He gives them two places to worship in the north. He made worship convenient. Then he also, he made priests out of people that, according to God's law, should not be priests. Priests were to come from the priestly line. But he's like, well, now I got these temples, now I need these priests. And he also changed some of Israel's holy days. So he compromised worship. And then he put, he went against, in the Ten Commandments, we already mentioned those with Moses, right? He built golden bulls and put them in Israel's new two worship centers, directly in, in disobedience to the very first commands God gave his people. So he led his people in counterfeit worship. So what now? What well, you'll see this in, uh, in every one of my handouts because these are questions, I think in questions, which is what makes teaching at Wheaton so fun and writing for Tyndale so fun. So if I ask me the question, it's fair game for me to ask you the question. So what now? What's on your sheet? Is my worship of the one true God characterized by convenience and or compromise or any counterfeit gods a part of my worship? Ahab is another character you're going to meet, king of Israel in the northern kingdom. He ruled actually during Israel's northern kingdom, one of their most prosperous time. He continued in Jeroboam's sin, but even worse, largely because of the woman that he married, Jezebel. Jezebel, he, she was a Phoenician princess. Again, the, the marriage really was for political purposes to keep peace. She was from Tyre. T-Y-R-E. 
And what she did is she brought the worship of Bel Mekart into Israel. The problem was, well, lots of problems with that, but she didn't just want the, t- the two to coexist, the worship of Yahweh God and Bel Mekart. Her mission was to totally stamp out the worship of Yahweh and everyone to worship Bel Melkart. Eventually, by the way, the rest of the story, Ahab and Jezebel are, are, uh, died under the judgment of God. Bel Melkart, I, I have this in quotes because it's not a person and it's not a God. It's not even real, but this is who they worshipped, Bel Melkart. And you might be wondering, I've heard of Baal, but why Baal? Who is that? So just a little background. Baal itself is a Semitic word that means Lord, Master, or Owner. It was the chief god worshipped by the Canaanites. Remember in our history lesson, you heard the word Canaanites. That's who was living in the promised land whenever Joshua brought the people in. The worship of Baal, this Canaanite deity, had been observed by Israelites in the days of the Judges. We talked about them. You see why history is so important to know where you are right now? We jump into chapter 17 and meet Elijah. There's so much more, right? Okay, so David rids the land, remember King David, of Baal worship, but now it's resurrected on a new scale in the divided kingdom, larger than before, and it's done by the actual government itself, the king himself. The head of the the Canaanite pantheon of God's was called El, E-L, E-L. And he was regarded the father of 70 Elims, or gods. And the most popular of these gods was Baal. So you see there's this huge hierarchy of false gods going on. And Baal's way down here, but that's who we're worshiping during this time. And it's not good. So Baal, it was believed to be the god of fertility, in all aspects of life, human, animal, and vegetation. Production and prosperity were dependent on Baal. This is what the people believed. He was worshipped as the weather god, the god of storm, of rain, and good crops. Now you see why this is very important to the background of 1 Kings 17-19, through 19, which is where you're going to jump in, the story of the drought and the contest on Mount Carmel. Do you remember the, the verse that we meet him in? It is a direct challenge to the God, the, the false God the people are work, worshiping. Worship was localized so that each area worshipped their own Baal. So Baal Mechart came from Tyre, which is where Jezebel came from. So she brings her localized God to the people of Israel. So that's why you see Baal Melkart. You'll see a lot of other Baal names in Scripture. I wrote down a few Baal, Meon, Baal, Hermon, Baal, Hazar, Baal, Zebub, Baal, Marduk, Baal, Peor. They're all false gods, right? But that's why you see that in Scripture, so many different Baals. It's just a localized false god. All right. Bell worship included the offering of incense and burnt offerings, often human sacrifices, and licentious sexual activity, including sodomy. Elijah, he's our guy. He's the one who's going to point us to God all through our study. He was the prophet. In history here, he was 58 years into the divided kingdom. So there had been seven kings that had reigned by the time he came to be 
God's mouthpiece. Remember, it's the mouthpiece of the northern kingdom. And remember, all 20 kings in the north were evil in the sight of God. He shows up in the palace one day and announces no more rain until he says so. It's true. Three and a half years pass and there's no rain. And miracles happen in the meantime. We're going to study those this semester together. He challenges the prophets of the God of Baal to a contest on Mount Carmel and God wins. He's eventually taken to heaven in a whirlwind. There are chariots of fire for real. And we're going to come back to Elijah in a mo- mo- moment. Key people in 2 Kings, briefly. Elisha, could it, you know, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, Elijah, Elisha. Could we not have such a few more distinctions in the name so we can remember? Let me just tell you, do it by alphabetical order if you keep getting confused which, which one's Elijah or Elisha. J comes before S, Elijah came before Elisha. Elisha has a lot of miracles that he does as well. You can read about those if you read through the whole First and Second Kings. He divides the Jordan River. He purifies water. He raises someone from the dead. He multiplies olive oil. He heals a leopard. So he is Elijah's successor. Hezekiah and Josiah are two of the godly kings of Judah. You might have heard of them. And the last guy up there, Nebuchadnezzar, he's the ruler of the Babylonian Empire. So you might have heard of him before. Remember that ended the, that, um, the kingdom of Judah in the south. Remember, north ended first, south hung on a few years more later. All right, it is in this context we, that we meet Elijah in God's word. So how do we study? Intentionally, in totality, and we study individually and corporately. You're going to study individually this week, and then you're going to come back here, and we're going to study corporately when one of our other leaders will teach us for 30 minutes, and then we'll get to go into our groups and continue learning, meeting the author, meeting the pilot, right? All right, I'm going to ask you some questions here. We already read the scripture. Where's Elijah from? Tishbe in Gilead. Okay, never heard of him. All right, what do we learn of God in Elijah's declaration? The Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Well, at least Elijah thinks so, doesn't he? What else do I learn about God? God is a personal, relational God. Do you see that? At least for Elijah, he is. What stands out to you about Elijah? A particular character trait, a first impression. This this is, we're meeting him right here. What stands out to you? Courage. Anybody else think of a word? He, He worshiped God. Yeah, I thought about courage and boldness. I mean, this is pretty bold. The guy walks right into the, 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 hello, I'm Elijah. I mean, he walks in, and this is what he says. That's pretty bold. Pretty bold. Back to the distinction of God. What God does Ahab and everybody else serve? Remember? Everybody else serves Baal, Meccart. And here is this one guy standing there declaring, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God whom I worship and serve. Wow. Wow. All right. And then, again, this begins the challenge, right? And then we'll see it played out on Mount Carmel. All right, Elijah, quickly. I have to give this back to Gayla at 5 till because she wants to pray and give you more announcements. So I'm going to quit in 10 minutes. Elijah, his name, it actually means my God is Yahweh. Wow, think about that. He walks in, and anytime anybody knows who he is, he's declaring his God with his very name. 
Nothing is mentioned about his parents, no ancestry, but I assume they're godly if they're the ones who named him. But we don't really know anything about his ancestry, his training, or his early life. Who in the New Testament, by the way, is considered Elijah's counterpart? Anybody? I, hear, I hear it very quietly. John the Baptist. Elijah's name was a standing declaration of his faith. So what now what? Do others know what I worship and serve God and how? Who and what is my God? And you'll hear more about this in later teaching. Ancestry home. We already said the Tishbite, who was the settlers of Gilead. In, in other words, by the way, he has referred to this so many times. How many times? Six times, Elijah the Tishbite. So it's there for a reason. And you know what I think I find so interesting? I think the reason is so that we know that he's not on Israel's who's who list. Tishbite was like a nowhere place. As a matter of fact, they can't even decide for sure where it is. They do believe it's in the northern kingdom, but they don't know exactly where it is. He's a no, nowhere kind of guy. All right, let's keep going. The settlers of Gilead. It really means the sojourners of Gilead. Now, Gilead, we do know where that is, and it's a rocky region. That's actually what the word means, rocky region. So the, the phrase is certainly suggestive of his lifestyle as a sojourner. He wasn't from the palace. He was not of the seminary of Samaria. The people of the rocky hill country of Gilead were rough, tough, rugged people. They lived in crude villages as shepherds rather than in the lavish surroundings of the palace. The people of Gilead were hardened by the weather and walking over the mountainous terrain. I, I think of him as a mountain man. Can you picture it now, him walking into the palace, this mountain man? Think about David, the shepherd boy, how God got him ready and trained him. Think about John the Baptist. He was a man in the desert, remember, in the New Testament. This makes me ask, so what now what? How is God developing his character in me? How have I changed in the last year? And I just put year as a time frame. You can fill anything in there. Okay, last, we're women. We got to talk about what he's wearing, attire. Okay, now we actually don't know what he's wearing from this first scripture, but we do get a description in 2 Kings chapter 1. And his dress and appearance is so distinctive. It's a garment of black camel's hair girded with a leather belt about his waist to hold in his garment for freer movement. And this actually becomes the official dress of the prophet. Did you know that? In Zechariah. It's in striking contrast to the affluent inhabitants of Samaria, especially the Baal priests, who were believed to have worn white linen gowns, high-pointed bonnets, and lived on the delicacies of the palace. Now, do you see the picture clearly of, of this verse when we meet him? When he walks into the palace, shoot, before he even walks into the palace, he's walking down the street and everybody's going, who is this guy, right? And then he walks in and, his name declares who he is, and his dress declares who he is. His dress, his lifestyle, his name all demonstrate his separation and devotion to the Lord. The so what, now what's on your handout. Sorry if you're listening online. I'm going to stop reading those so I can get more in. Opening and closing statements. 
Remember in the Old Testament Pentateuch, which was Elijah's Bible at the time. It was the people's Bible at the time. God had a special purpose for Israel, and he had promised them blessing for obedience and cursing for disobedience. And those curses included shutting the heavens up. No rain. And no rain meant no production. There is an interesting historical reference found in 1 Kings 16, the very chapter before we meet Elijah, that says Ahab provoked the Lord with his idolatry more than all the kings of Israel. So Elijah's statement is really the proclamation of God's judgment as warned in the Old Testament. And you can read that in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 11. I say that just so that you know that Elijah's not speaking on his own behalf. Elijah is speaking God's word. Now, he was not a man of many words, but a man of much faith. God was dramatically challenging Baalism through this initial introduction of his prophet. This prayer for the secession of rain, another, it's just important to know that the end result was not punishment for his people. What God was after was to bring Israel to repentance. And we learn a lot about our Father God in that. That was the purpose, to bring his people back to worshiping him. You'll see this as we study. This is who God is still today, drawing his people to himself. So what now what on your handout? Now you might be thinking, well, I wish I were like Elijah. I'm just not. He was chosen by God, a prophet for crying out loud. I'm not like him right now. You might be thinking, I'm not even sure why I signed up for this Bible study. I'm not like Elijah. Hear the word, hear the truth in God's word. James 5, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and wonderful results. Elijah was a human as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. Then he prayed for rain, and down it poured. The grass turned green, and the crops began to grow again. How human was Elijah compared to you? The same. Wow. Wow. When we read about these guys in the Bible and the women, We want so very much to believe such people are inherently different because I think it gives us, it soothes our consciousness. It almost gives us an excuse, right, to be mediocre. Well, that's blown right out of the water right here. That's just not true. Now, he's a guy just like us. He doesn't have any innate super-duper qualities. It wasn't in the absence of personal weakness, temptation, failure, or even fear. You're going to see all of that in Elijah's life. It's never seeing the difficulties that prevent faithful action. It's failing to see the resources of our Lord God. It's the failure to live by faith and stay focused on the Lord. And Elijah's going to point us to God in that very way. There is a mentality that can creep in that says we must have money, reputation, position, be from the right place, fill in the blank. We must have, I must have blank to really count for God. And, Bel- and Elijah had none of these, right? From a nowhere place. We don't know his mom and dad. Elijah is God's commentary against the excuses and fears that can so often paralyze us. All right, so what now what on your handout? James 5. What's the one word, a spiritual discipline, that's repeated three times in this passage? Hurry, i got to tell you about it in two minutes. Prayer. 
Prayer is the context of this New Testament passage where Elijah is mentioned. And that's what you're going to study the first week is prayer. Now, I don't know how your prayer life looks, but maybe every now and then does it look like this? Not surprising, God's Word has a lot to say about prayer. 650 prayers included in God's Word. The Lord's Prayer is one of them, not to be rotely said, but to understood in principle. We're going to look at that in our last minutes. The Psalms is a beautiful book full of prayers, much of them written by King David. The Prayers of Paul is not just an Old Testament thing. In the New Testament, all of Paul's letter, but Titus includes at least one prayer. And there are other prayers all throughout the Bible. Jesus in prayer. Over 12 specific prayers are recorded that Jesus prayed. He also taught in parables and teachings. We're going to look at one of those. He had a practice of solitary prayer, praying alone. And he seems to intensify his prayer times around key events. The most encouraging word probably, maybe, is intercession is what he does now. Check out Hebrews 7.25. Well, what about me in prayer? What does God's word say? If I said the word devote, you might think of words like a priority, a sacrifice, give time and energy to it. And that's what God's word says I'm to be, is devoted to prayer. Devoted to prayer, Colossians 4.2. Anybody, can you finish these? Now I lay me down to sleep. God is great. Yeah, these are rote prayers. What does Jesus say about rote prayers? Matthew 6, 7 gives us the warning that Jesus gives about rote prayer. There might be some acronyms you're aware of. I'm going to give them to, a, a few of them to you fast. These aren't rote prayers, but these are maybe ways to guide you in praying if praying is new to you. Praying, by the way, is just talking and listening to God. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication. What if you can't remember what the word is that's the acronym? Has that ever happened to you? You're like, I'll remember it this way. And then you can't remember the word. So I came up with another one, pray. P stands for praise, R for repent, A for ask, and Y for yield. There's another one, the hand prayer. I did not know that Pope Francis was the guy who came up with this. Um, I heard it a long time, but did not know it. I've got to do it quickly because I'm already supposed to have turned it over. Can I? Okay. Thumb closest to you, the index pointer, those who teach, instruct, and heal you. The middle finger is our, our tallest finger, those in leadership and authority. Our ring finger is our weakest finger, those who are sick and with problems. And then the pinky, the smallest. Pray for yourself. We're not the only ones who want to know how to pray. The disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? And he gave us the Lord's Prayer. And it is fine to say the Lord's Prayer and and say it together. But I want to encourage you to see the principles behind it. And that's how we're going to close. I'm just going to give you the blanks to fill in. The scriptures where I get these principles come not just from the Lord's Prayer, but I also found them in other parts of scripture. And those are all on your handout for you. So Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, may your name be honored. The principle, may I know not only who you are, but know you. May I have an intimate relationship with you. Scriptures on your handout, Hosea. Oh, that we might know the Lord. Let us press on to know him. Pray like this. Matthew 6.10, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. What's the principle there? May I have an eternal perspective as I seek you 
as I seek your will and obey your ways. If you want to look and see how, how, how it is, when you're praying that, your will be done in, in earth as it is in heaven. You want to know how God's will is done in heaven? Look at Psalms 103.20. They're all like sitting there waiting for the command. God says it. They're like, I got it. I'm on it. That's what's happening in heaven. You read it yourself. Pray like this, Matthew 6, 11, Give us our food for today. May my needs be met, and may I acknowledge and thank you as my provider. Beautiful passage in Matthew 6 where he talks about the birds and the lilies and the end line, your heavenly Father already knows all your needs, and he will give you all you need from day to day if you live for him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. Forgive us our sins. The principle there, may my life be filled with forgiveness. May I receive God's forgiveness. May I extend forgiveness. And may I accept others' forgiveness. That's the principle. And again, you can read those scriptures on your own. And don't let us yield to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The principle there, may I seek your guidance and strength as I face the temptations of this day. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is on your handout for you. Ephesians 6 is what you'll be studying next semester, the armor of God. The last one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. May I bring you glory today. Whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, you must do it all for the glory of God. And at the end of our book... Revelation 4 tells us about our great God, who he is. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. So what, now what? You can read those on your handout there. I do want to point out there's a really wonderful news of who's praying for you now. The Holy Spirit is praying for you now, especially whenever your prayers might look like that slide I showed. That's a beautiful promise. Star that one. Look it up on your own later. So what now? What, what is it I'm most in need of from God? The last one on there, Hebrews 4.16. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. To help me when I need it most, I come boldly. Sounds like Elijah, doesn't it? To the throne of our gracious God. That's prayer. And the promises for me and for you, there we find mercy and grace. Philip Yancey says, prayer means keeping company with God, who is already present. Prayer means opening myself to God and not limiting God through my own perceptions, preconceptions. And some prayer means letting God be God. Ultimately, prayer proves its power by producing changes in us, the prayers. A doctoral student at Princeton asked, what is there left in the world for original dissertation research? And Albert Einstein replied, find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. Find out about prayer this week as you study to know God more and more.